You're listening to Intelligent Data, a podcast by Proficient. Proficient is a global digital consultancy that's transforming how the world's biggest brands connect with customers and grow their businesses. Throughout this series, you'll learn how valuable data is today and how it can transform your business. And now here's our host, Arvind Morali, Data Chief Strategist and Principal at Proficient. Industrial Revolution 4.0 is a topic on many people's minds. However, what drives this revolution is data and technology, which also means data literacy is the key for organizations to adopt data and technology to drive their business. Data literacist Ben Jones was very articulate in this episode discussing data explosion, the issues of interpretation, and what he does to solve those problems. He also talked about the maturity models his team has built that will help map out organizational data literacy maturity continuum. Enjoy this episode on data literacy and please check out the tools Ben offers, which we've posted in our show notes. Take a listen. It is a privilege to welcome our guest today, Ben Jones. He is the co-founder and CEO of a company that trains organizations to be data literate called Data Literacy LLC. He's also a professor in University of Washington and the author of the book, Data Literacy Fundamentals. His focus is to educate people, learn the language of data. Ben Jones, welcome to the Intelligent Data Podcast. Hi, Arvind. Thanks a lot for having me. It's, it's a pleasure to be here with you. Yeah. Ben, can you introduce yourself and what you do? Yeah, you bet. You did a great job, but uh, yeah, absolutely. You're right. I run data literacy at dataliteracy.com and our focus is on helping organizations speak the language of data. Uh, we're on a mission to close the greatest skill and education gap of our time, which is people's ability to make effective use of data within teams, but also as individuals in, in pub, the public society. Uh, and so that is what we do. We do that through training, books, resources, webinars, lectures. We also help organizations with assessments to benchmark their progress and various things like that. So that's a little bit about me. I live here in the Seattle area and I have a background in business intelligence where I uh, had a chance to work at the Tableau uh, offices for many years uh, where I grew and, and cultivated the passion for data and for working with it effectively and in team environment. So that's a bit about me. Okay, so why is data literacy so important now for organizations? Haven't we been been using data for a long time? I mean, think Flintstones. Yeah, absolutely. You know, you can have a long history of human beings making sense of their environment with data, communicating to each other with data, whether that's on clay tablets or carvings. So I think what happened, right, was when the third industrial revolution kicked off in the mid-40s, you have this explosion of computing power an explosion of data and software and programming languages to leverage all of that. And so, you know, since I would say the turn of, of the millennia 2000 and on, uh, people have just found themselves in an environment where they need to make sense of data. And that's reflected in job posting growth. That's reflected in universities scrambling to create and launch programs that address this gap. And so I think you just have, you know, a wide spectrum of individuals now in every team and organization, some of whom are experts in data, others who are data phobic. And so how do organizations move forward and make effective use of data, given that you do have some individuals whose formal training and education just didn't prepare them uh, for the types of activities 
that they have to go through every single week, really, you know. So I think that that's why we have this data literacy gap now and why it's incumbent on all of us to try to figure out what we can do to close it. Absolutely. I think the, the the digital disruption of this decade and probably the the last decade since 2000s, like you mentioned, has has created a massive data, right? So um, one of our friends, uh, Scott Taylor, who was actually on the show, he mentioned, hey, digital transformation to me is just more ways of creating data, more ways of using data for competitive advantage, and more ways of understanding data. In a nutshell, that's what it is, right? More devices, more data, and so on and so forth. So absolutely agree with you. Look, there, there was an article that was written by IBM uh, called Data Maturity about 10 years ago, give or take. And they were talking about the difference between data being data literate and being data savvy. So an example that comes to my mind is you take a a marketing team who's putting together a campaign to go sell cars, right? Um, What happens is this marketing team is building analytics on a silo of their own, and they are looking at how many cars are being sold and where is it being sold, the region, the territory, and so on and so forth. The disconnect there is that they are not looking at their own supply chain as to how effective is their supply chain in building more cars to meet the demand. So there is a disconnect. While they are data savvy, they are not data literate. What do you think about that? Are, do you think data savvy, being data savvy and data literate are two things or are they the same to you? <laughs> yeah, I, to me, the way I see it is there is a spectrum of levels of proficiency when it comes to working with data. And so this is just like when we were kids growing up, we would learn to read And let's say you're in fourth grade, but you're learning it, you know, reading at a fifth or sixth grade reading level. So you wouldn't have a third grader read The Sun Also Rises by Ernest Hemingway. I mean, it'd be very difficult and frustrating for them. There's a spectrum of knowledge and skills. Data savvy is very high on that skill. This to me is someone who has a lot of wisdom to apply to the data working endeavor. And oftentimes when we're working with individuals, that goal to become data literate is is usually allowing them to start off with some very simple types of skills and knowledge. And that can really lower the uh, bar of intimidation, if you will. Hey, I just want to become a little bit data literate. I don't want to become an expert right now. I just need to start speaking this language a little bit. And in that sense, it is like not just reading, but also speaking a language when you're learning a foreign language. You'll first maybe start by reading or writing and then watching a television program or listening to a radio broadcast and then eventually having conversations and maybe even living there in the environment where people are speaking the language all around you. And so it's this gradual evolution and growth. So I agree with uh, IBM's take on it. There's a sliding scale. My difference is that I put data savvy pretty high up. We actually have our own assessment we run organizations through. And we put them into you know five stages of maturity based on how they rate themselves. And so I think that this is uh, you know an important thing for every organization to do to say where are we right now in this spectrum of organizations in terms of how well we speak the language of data to each other. Uh, it's a really important question, and I think we're you know we're trying to do what we can to help organizations answer that question. Very interesting. You know, talking about intimidation, I enjoyed listening to your 17 key traits of uh, data literacy. I know you've got a lot of thoughts put into it. 
maybe can you pick your top three? We'll, we'll put a link in the show notes, by the way. Yeah. So, I mean, so the 17 key traits, right? This is a free ebook and um, there's a little self-assessment you can take on our site. But basically what we're trying to do is help people kind of rate themselves and identify their growth opportunities. And so they're rating themselves along those 17 traits, which we can group into four categories, knowledge, skills, attitudes, and behaviors. And I think a lot of times people think of data literacy as being about knowledge and skills, and it certainly is. But it's also about a mindset, and it's also about the sorts of things that we do day in and day out. What are our habits? What are our behaviors? And so we help them think about it from that point of view as well. And I guess if I would have to rate the skills, I mean, I you know having a background in visualization from Tableau and visual analytics, I definitely do think that you know the ability to interact with and read and interpret charts and graphs. Hey, that's a really important uh, trait because you know so much of what we take in is through the visual cortex, and so I think when we are interacting with data, it's often through our eyes, whether we're looking at even just facts and figures or tables, or something as more sophisticated as a dashboard. So I think that that to me is such a core skill that people are learning. That's why we uh, launched our level one program, which is all about learning to see data, helping people that are reading charts and graphs that were created by others. It's such an important skill uh, already coming out of the gate. You have a, a document out there in your website that talks about what charts to use for what purpose. Like, what are you trying to communicate and what charts to use for that communication, if you will, right? Exactly. We get into this trap of thinking we need to just choose the right chart type, but ultimately it's more about what's your message, what's going to convey that effectively. And then also on the audience's side, what are the assumptions and conventions they're going to have in their minds when you show them something? And the more you can understand that, the better you are. And so I think that that's why another, you said, what are the three? I think that there's this also this skill around communicating data effectively. You know, we've known for some time that those who can tell effective data stories they really sway the organization one way or another in very important moments and decisions. So I think that that's a, a huge skill. And I'll throw a mix in there, maybe a, a, a different one. I think that it's really important to be alert to some of the pitfalls. That's one of the attitudes that says, I'm on the lookout for these sorts of um, zingers right, that might come my way when I or my team is using data. So many little pitfalls. I wrote a book called Avoiding Data Pitfalls, which is all about that. You know, what are the different ways which we blunder and, and fall into these traps of misleading ourselves and others, even maybe unintentionally? So alertness, I think, is a key attitude. As we begin to learn and grow and evolve together, it's good for us to be uh, aware of where some of those icebergs are, I guess, if you will. Yeah. Does alert in this context of attitude basically means I'm alert of my business events and I know how to look for them? Or is it I'm alert about the modern trends in tools and technologies and, you know, the, this whole digital transformation, digital disruption, and I know how to get ahead of it by getting trained and by getting, you know, ahead of it? What, uh, mm -hmm. what does alert mean? Or is it a combination of both? Yeah, that's a great, that's a great question. I mean, to me, when I was using that term in the context of the 17 key traits of data literacy, it was more about being alert to potential problems with the data. Let's say, for example, we're using a survey and everyone in the room seems to be making assumptions about that it, what it means about the entire population, even though N is rather small. Or perhaps, you know, there's alertness about technical issues, maybe 
We ran a query and used the wrong parameters. We're not quite looking at what we think we're looking at. Um, so there's so many of these, you know, kind of potential pitfalls when we work with data. However, I do think it's important, you know, to be resourceful, to have our radar tuned to the latest trends, what types of conversations are happening, alertness to technology trends, but also, as you mentioned, you know, this whole business acumen. And this question comes up a lot when we work with organizations is they say, well, you know, we know the data maybe, but we don't really know what it means. We don't know how it applies to the business or the, the all important so what question. What does this even mean for us? And alert to the business side of it, I think, is something that often someone who's very data focused or analytics focused, they're going to miss that. And I think that that's super critical as it relates to what's the application here and why does it matter? Yeah, I say understand the context and then marry the content towards the context, right? Mm -hmm. You right. don't understand the context, it's it's pointless at that point. Let, let's talk about some of the ways of effective communication. I, I, I like that very much, and I think it's the most difficult job to do in this world. Starting with the stakeholders. You can be Excel savvy, you can be BI savvy, you can do all of that as an analyst, but it's that art of storytelling. Our executives go from one meeting to another meeting to another meeting, and they have the attention span of a squirrel. <laughs> they just have too many critical things running in their mind, and they have to prioritize to what they pay attention to. How do you effectively communicate to a stakeholder? How do you do that data storytelling? What are the maybe one, two, three priorities that you see in your training and talking to many customers alike? Like you say, you need to know your audience. You need to understand what you're trying to convey to them in terms of facts, but then also you need to understand the emotional side of that coin, which is what are the fears and the concerns, what types of emotions are related to this. So a story I like to tell is I was early in my career at a medical device company and I was responsible for the launch of a product. And I knew that I was called to present to the executives about the success of the launch of the product, how well was it going? And I knew that it was in a product review meeting that was going on all day. I was called in for a 15 to 20 minute snippet of that and sandwiched between many other such presentations. So I knew they weren't really going to be paying a ton of attention. And so I found a way to interact with the human side of it. Okay, so in other words, instead of just making charts and graphs about the sales of the product and you know the market acceptance of the product, I also got phone calls uh, from the helpline and played them uh, so they could hear people's reaction. I also found, and this was early on back in like 2010, so Twitter was still, <laughs> I guess, relatively new back then maybe. But anyway, we found some tweets of people and specifically ones that were critical of, of a decision we had made in the launch of the product to withhold a certain uh, feature. And so, you know, um, and also then using the data to show perhaps what the sales could have been with that feature. And so I guess my point is, I saw them lean forward and even smile and laugh when I started to show the human side of the data, we're marrying the stats with the anecdotes. We're marrying the quantitative information with the emotional information and having that perspective that we want to be able to communicate in a multifaceted way to reach both the minds and the hearts of our audience. And so I think that that to me is what a highly skilled data communicator knows how to do and by the way, knows how to do that ethically and knows how to do that in a way that is still true to the message and the data and doesn't mislead or skew the information uh, by pulling heartstrings, right? I mean, that's certainly something we can do. And so can we go about it in an ethical way? 
I think is also a critical question. Absolutely. So do, do you, have you ever heard of um, the Amazon way of uh, organizing a meeting? Do you know what that is? No, refresh my memory. I worked for an Amazon executive at one point, actually at Tableau. So I'm curious what this is. Yeah. So they have, uh, I, I believe like six principles or seven principles of a meeting. One, don't use PowerPoint for the meetings. You're, you're <laughs> not going to use that at all. And two, when somebody asks you a question, as in, how is your sales in a particular territory, instead of saying, I believe it's that, replace the believe or any kind of gut feeling with data. Mm -hmm. It is mm -hmm. exactly this. And then when a leader or your superior asks you, can you improve on a particular area, ask them to quantify that statement. Those are the top three things that comes to mind. Of course, there are other principles too. But they, they have not just articulated this, but they force you to get trained on these practices, essentially to say every meeting you have. And then, of course, there's a two pizza rule. Like if you have a meeting that has people uh, where two pizza is not going to be enough, that's not an effective meeting. So for the audience listening to the podcast, I would say go check that out as well. It's very, very straight to the point. But I also feel that there's no human side of that principle. It's all about data. That's not enough. No, I'm glad. Wow, I was wondering where you were going with that. And right at the end, you won me over. Because here's my point. I think those rules are there for a good reason. They're trying to counteract trends that have happened in business for so long that have caused us to make poor decisions. So I get it. I understand why they're doing that. I think, though, maybe it's overreaching and pushing the pendulum too far the other way because some things are very difficult to quantify and sometimes your gut or instincts are actually really valid and important. And so I think it's important for us to look at it and say, is there a matching or an alignment of analytics and intuition? If so, we feel highly confident that we're going to be doing the right thing. Now, if there's a mismatch, okay, that's important. Let's pause. Let's pay attention because maybe it's possible that our analytics that we've, we've pulled together has showed us or revealed to us that what we thought all along was dead wrong. How often has that happened to us? It happens, right? I mean, this is something we go through and we realize this humbling experience that, real, that helps us realize, wait a minute, we were wrong. We thought this, but the data shows us it's not quite that way. And we check the data and it's right. Now, but the other thing can happen, which is that our data can be telling us X and we might be sitting there looking around the room at each other and saying, that doesn't feel right. There's something that doesn't quite ring true about that. Can we cross-check that? Can we, can we take a look cl more closely? And sometimes when we do that, we find out that there's a problem with the data. And so we need to be engaging, I think, on all of these different levels when we're meeting with others in a business context. So I think I would amend the M if I, you know, they've been so successful, it almost feels so arrogant to say this, but I might amend those rules a little bit to allow for engagement with intuition, to allow for a realization that maybe in some cases it's hard for us to actually use data to measure something specific. Maybe instead of amend, I would think about append, right? Yeah. Um, <laughs> and then the other thing is, as you were speaking about this example, uh, Microsoft Taybot comes to mind. They released a chat bot. Uh, mm -hmm. I believe it went live for like two days or three days or something like that. It became very racially biased because to your point, the bot just looks at data and it takes decisions based on data, right? So when they launched it in social media, it the kind of interactions it had, it just used those interactions to its to its capabilities 
and essentially right. started becoming racially biased. They took it out. They did a phenomenal job. But this came from a set of humans that said, wait a minute, this bot is having a lot of racial bias towards its response. And that's the alertness I was referring to earlier in my top three most you know, favorite traits is that we need to be aware of when the data might be letting us down or when it might be, uh, you know, like you're saying, going astray. And, and hey, that's going to happen. We're still early. If you take a scan out, big picture view, as a species, even though, yes, as you pointed out earlier in the conversation, we've been using quantitative information for eons. We're still fairly new in terms of the computing era, and we've got a long way to go in our evolution. And so, you know, we're kind of like that baby crawling. You got to watch out for the corner of the table. You got to watch out for parents. As parents, we don't leave things laying around. Those things are there. And, and I think that whether it's, like you mentioned, bias in automated algorithms or whether it's just dirty data misapplying uh, something as simple as the average and not really understanding what that's telling us in a given situation. So these are things we need to continually be asking ourselves. Can't agree with you more. So on that note, let's talk about how do you assess the data literacy maturity of an organization? How do you go about doing that process? Yeah. So right now we have this data literacy score. And so it's a uh, 50 question quantitative survey. So it's a subjective team-based self-assessment. They send the survey out. They assess themselves on seven different categories of maturity, right? Those are um, going beyond just data. Is it available? Is it high quality technology? Do you have the right tools? Sure. Those are important aspects or categories, but also others like purpose, right? Are we actually using data to move the needle or are we just doing pet projects around here? Or, you know, ethics, right? So do we have this foundation of ethics? No one wants to work for an organization that's using data for harm. So does our organization do a good job at that, right? Can you raise a red flag if you find an issue and that maybe something uh, could go wrong there? Um, So those are the categories. And then at the end, so they get a score. It's very subjective, but they get to see which questions they scored highly and which questions they scored low as a team. And then most importantly, at the end of that, they have three open-ended questions where they get to express to us what their barriers are, what their strengths are as a team, but also individually. And we go through those with a fine-tooth comb and reflect back to leaders, hey, what is your team telling you right now about its concerns and what barriers they're experiencing as it relates to data? Um, and so you get the score and that's great. And you can compare that, you know, with different sub teams, or even now we've done it long enough now where you can kind of see overall your percentile, but also I think more importantly, you get these, uh, open-ended responses. And then also along with that, you know, our set of recommendations as an outsider that we would say you might want to look at, uh, based on what we, we take in. So that's our data literacy score team-based assessment. And, um, you know, still early days. We just have been running it for a little over a year now. But we learn a lot. And, you know, organizations are really, I think, coming up with much more than just a training plan. There's many more elements to and factors to take into consideration when you try to get a team operating at a high level of data literacy. Absolutely. Who are your respondents, by the way? Are they business and IT or are they just IT and or business? Yeah, so we've, you know, we open it up to anyone. So we work with a, a healthcare company and really in that case, I'm thinking of an example where we opened it up to their call center. And so, you know, these were people who were not interacting with raw data. And so we got to understand, you know, what were their uh, perspectives about data and how it was 
uh, helping them or hindering them to do their jobs. And also, we might also work with individuals in the analytics team and the IT teams to perhaps get a completely different perspective, which is why it's helpful when we report out to report out by group, you know, because you're going to see very different perspectives from those different teams. And it's sometimes interesting just to see the different sorts of things that they, the flags that they raise, you know, how do, for example, how does the analytics team rate their ability to use dashboards with maybe the dashboard users? How do those individuals rate it? So it's, it's, I think, fascinating sometimes to see those different perspectives. Talking about fascinating, let me ask you this. So you are gathering all of the surveys and I'm assuming you have access to the survey results, right? In, in your analysis, given that you've done this for a number of clients, where do you see the organization, if you aggregate all the data, where do you see yeah. most of the organizations live from a maturity perspective and why? Yeah, so it's very, very rare. So we right now group them into five maturity stages by quintile, right? So 20th percentile. So the lowest 20th percentile, that's going to be an organization that, you know, what we call that's sort of like data novices. Um, and so those are individual, those are organizations that have an average score of 300 or less on a scale of zero to 500. And then from there, it's roughly 50 point buckets as you step up from stage two to stage three, four, and five that gets you up to 500. And that's roughly the alignment now of, as of right now of quintiles. And so, you know, I think what that tells us right away is, you know, like we've all, you know, kind of gone on Amazon and seen product ratings. And so, we start off the scale in the middle of every question, and so they can move it up or down. And so we see, you know, in general, this is not abnormal, I think, in, in these types of uh, Likert scale surveys. You see data clumping in the top half of the overall range, but you do see some, some individuals that are scoring the team low uh, in certain respects. That's kind of, in general, what we see uh, as, as individuals rate themselves and their teams. Where do most of your clients lie? So we'll see average data inclined is by far stage three, right? Smack dab in the middle. That is by far the most common stage that an overall organization will land in. But then we'll show them also, what was your high and your low? Uh, so your lowest scoring individual, where do they put you? And then your highest scoring individual, where do they put you? And then what's the distribution? So you get a sense, uh, is there a lot of consensus within the team about how well things are going versus you know maybe you have a situation where you have widely varying perspectives about uh, the organization's ability to use data, as well as, you know, mapped together with that, as you know, what's your survey taking style? Uh, so sort of people different have different approaches to that. So it's all blended together in there. Inclined basically means I am inclined to move towards becoming data literate. Almost always with the data inclined organization, there is an admission and an acceptance that data is hugely valuable and that it's important for them to use their jobs. So there's very little questioning of that at that stage. And the, the barriers now are really around the ability to incorporate it more effectively into what we do. But in a data-inclined team, I mean, most people at that point are saying, data's here to stay and we need it and we've got to get better at it. And so, you know, we're not there yet, but it's what we need to do. That's really something that very few people question. Now, in your experience doing this for a while, what are some of the assumptions that kind of surprised you? Or what, what are some of the things that you've seen which surprised you that you, you were not prepared for? That's, that's an interesting question. Let me think about that for a minute. So when we see organizations responding to this, 
What are some of the things that we saw that we didn't expect to see? Some of the things we saw that we, I mean, maybe some of the things we did expect to see are around data quality, data access, familiarity with the data. You know, what do these variables mean? There's a lot of, and I think the thing that didn't surprise us at all, especially with large organizations, was that, you know, there are issues with the disparate nature of data, as well as this kind of highly complex technological landscape where things aren't quite operating well in terms of, you know, interoperability of all of these tools and technologies at our fingertips. Those are the things we expected to see. I think the things we didn't expect to see, you know, maybe related more to attitudes. How about I work for finance and uh, I maintain our books and by books, I literally mean paper books. Have you seen any of those? You know, it's interesting. So people that are almost like stuck in much, much earlier, you know, very little of that. No, most of the organizations that are reaching out to us have already digitized almost everything. So there's very little, I would say, like reliance on hard copy records. Not a lot of that. No, I think most of what we've seen has been digital in nature, thankfully, because I think that if that's not taken place yet, then that's a huge transformation already that they need to take on before maybe they can go beyond that uh, and and embrace data in a more, I guess, maybe modern way, right? But uh, yeah, it's it's such a broad broad spectrum of organizations that are, and even sometimes within an organization, right? Team A is all the way at the automated insights level. Team B might be literally doing things by hand still uh, on paper. So a very large company that we work with actually had a team, uh, an IT team, if you will, that were supporting their marketing group uh, for ages, right? So uh, two two of their team members who have been with the company for a little over 30 years, I believe, were about to get retired. They have absolutely no backup. And the marketing team was heavily reliant on them to not to do self-service, but to do data extracts, to look at the effectiveness of a campaign for customer churns and all of these metrics for ages, right? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So collectively, that team is going to fail because if these two folks retire, right, very shortly, that's a huge gap to fill because that's a lot of data. These guys are going through lots of stored procedures and whatever they did. At the end of the day, they're producing valuable data set that marketing team is using to create a campaign. That was extremely dangerous for me to have human beings actually doing this work, manual labor, to create a data set that a business team is using and never had any thoughts about automation. Yeah. So so we do see a lot of that, right? Manual extracts, queries that are being run on a repeated basis to pull down CSVs to do analysis. So I think that that's actually fairly common, um, that part of it. I think that working with files, extracts from databases, you're going to see that until the very, very end. Even I think highly data literate organizations are still stuck doing that. And there's a reason for that, I think. I think that maybe a lot of individuals and companies really haven't been taught how to navigate the systems. And like you say, they're reliant on that one person in IT or that one data set, that, that data per- the Excel guru on our team to do a lot of manual copy and pasting. And so, yeah, that's highly problematic and, and it, it happens. And I think that it's going to keep happening for the foreseeable future. And I think the more we can educate people about the risks of going that route, as opposed to perhaps a much more mature path of interacting with high quality 
highly available data systems that have allowed us to. And so the question I think for organizations is why are people relying on these extracts like this? It's easy to look at it and say, oh, it's the person's fault. Well, why? Why are they still feeling like that's the way they need to get their information? And so what can we do to help them understand that there is a better way that's going to result in fewer errors and maybe even a whole lot less time and dependence on others? And this is what the self-service analytics revolution was supposed to be about. And I think in that sense, it has really failed to break people out of some of those habits that they have for good reason. Those habits are there for a reason, I guess, is my point. And so the question is, you know, why? Why are they there? Why do people only trust the way they used to do things? And how come in this massive data revolution, technological transformation, we have left them behind and and allowed them to rely on these old methods? Absolutely. No, I, I, I love the phrase that you just used, data revolution. Let's talk about that, right? So now I, I know that you have listed a lot of open data initiatives in your uh, website, you know, data world, data.gov, and, and a few others. What process do you follow to consider them as credible data resources? Don't get me wrong. Yeah. I love those websites. Sure. We use them all the time to work with our clients to justify a particular focus, right? Business focus. But what, yeah. what is the process you follow to, for lack of a better word, certify those websites, yeah. not the government one, maybe the non-government one, the commercial one? Yeah. Well, so data, yeah, like you mentioned, data.gov, right? So I guess if you trust the American government or data.gov.uk <laughs> and, and each one of those, you know, there's so many different data sources in those open data repositories. Some of them are far more trustworthy than others for a variety of reasons. The same is true of data.world, which, as you know, is a data catalog that companies can purchase and use for their own proprietary data. But the founders um, out of Austin, Texas, have believed that providing um, a version of that catalog for anyone to share publicly available data is a good strategy for growth. And so that is similar to the Tableau public strategy, by the way, you know, providing a highly functional version of your product out there for free. That's only the main limitation is you can only use publicly available or public domain data within that platform. So I think it's a great strategy, by the way, as an aside, I think with that though, you're going to have a broader spectrum. You're going to have anybody really can upload any data set they want. And so did, you know, there, I think you're going to look at it and perhaps need to be a little more cautious about what you do there. Now, the nice thing about that platform is that they allow you to reference maybe the, the source or you know, what was the origin of this data set that you've included in your, in your account on data.world. They certainly, as an organization, don't certify that every data set that's uploaded is accurate and error-free. That would be a crippling task to take on. And so I think it's user... Uh, beware, right? I mean, it's up to us, I think, all to be cautious and to cross-check. I had the chance with the Tableau Public Platform to work with a lot of journalists, and the best ones do that very, very well. They uh, check their sources, multiple different ways and angles, making sure it's trustworthy, understanding any of the glitches or perhaps quirks about that data set. And I think that that's incumbent on all of us to do that work ourselves. So, when we put those resources out there on our resources tab on our site, that's not a stamp of approval saying everything you'll find here is is flawless. I think that the important caveat that applies to working with data, whether it's in a professional context or a public context, is 
again, be alert, you know, be alert to some of the possible issues with it. Explore its contours. Try to see what's there. Are there nulls? Are there uh, outliers? Are there values that don't seem to make sense? Who uploaded it? What is the person's motivations and their agenda? Why did they put that data there? And who collected it? What was the process for collecting it? You know, uh, all those questions are so relevant and um, slow us down to some degree, but I think they slow us down so we can go faster, right? So I would hate to rush into a pitfall again. And maybe if I slow down and scan the uh, environment and the horizon, I might be able to chart a better path to get where I'm going. No, absolutely. You know, we use the word data stewards. I use the word data journalist. Our job is fact-finding. Is, is this the right data? Is this the certified data? And can it be used to solve our business problem, right? And that is no different whether you're going and using a third-party data. Because as you know, nowadays, every major player in the technology space is offering a marketplace. Google Marketplace, uh, Snowflake Data Marketplace, Adobe Data Marketplace. Each one of these guys offer such important data sets and of course, they, they show you a lineage of how they create data certifications on that, on that process and what kind of business problems it solves. But as a journalist, you got to do that due diligence yourself to make sure that when you recommend a data set, whether you use it for enrichment for your existing business processes or whether you use it as a net new data set, you got to do that due diligence. So we, we all have to be those data journalists, especially if you're going through the literacy program and you want to be data literate, as in what data solves what problems, right? Right. Yeah. It isn't just the technical issues with the data, but it's the applicability of it to the question you have. What are you trying to accomplish and how does that data actually help you, even if it were flawless and 100% perfect, how would it help you accomplish that objective? And if you don't really have a good answer to that question, it really doesn't matter if you dive into the weeds because it isn't going to really help you do what you want to do. So it's really both, you know, it's, it's really both. No doubt. And let's jump into these cheat sheets. I love your visual vocabulary cheat sheet where, you know, I've, I've sent it to my team as well, just to take a look at all these visuals and what story do each one of these say? I mean, everything is not a pie chart. Everything is not a bar chart, Right. Talk to us a little bit about this. Are you constantly developing these? You know, are, are you uh, working with the Tableaus and the Power BIs of the world to confirm if these are used for a particular data storytelling? How does that process go? Yeah, sure. So we're in the business right now of writing books and, and recording courses and delivering them on demand as well as live instructor led. And so along with that, you know, I, I've never taken a training course uh, that didn't give me some useful summary handouts and we've been lucky to contract with a really talented designer here out of Seattle that's helped us take some of our ideas and put them into little one or two pagers, because I think that is a big part of becoming more data literate is having some of those cheat sheets handy for us to be able to refer to for the first little while. I think ultimately, you know, the idea is that these things become second nature, but there's a process to get there. I don't think it's reasonable to demand ourselves to just immediately understand and recall everything perfectly. And so to the degree that we can create handouts that are, so for example, like with our data literacy level one course that goes along with the book, Learning to See Data, we published the 16 chart reading tips. So this would be for a consumer of a chart. So what are the things you need to look at? So there's 16 tips in there. For example, you know, take a look at the source, like we mentioned, like what does the title say? Uh, how has the data been encoded in visual form that uh, goes along with what we teach in that program? And so I think it is important. And yeah, we've been doing that on our own, uh, associated with our own courses. 
it's fun for us to just, you know, again, distill some of the key points down into a one or two pager that people could take with them. Uh, and so sometimes we've taken to making them interactive PDFs where you, you can check the boxes. I'm a big checklist believer. I think, you know, it's good to just run through a quick checklist every time you're about to do something important. Um, just take that, you know, maybe it's just 10, 20 seconds. It doesn't have to take you all day just to go down a quick list. Okay. Did I do that? Did I do that? Oops, I forgot that one. I'm going to dive into that real quick before I move forward. So, um, you know, making them not just for print, but also available to be used on a tablet or a computer. What's a way to make them interesting and engaging and fun? And whether that's through graphic design, or we've got one for avoiding data pitfalls where there's a person uh, kind of walking through a, on, a, on a road, you know, and all the pitfalls are marked as warning signs on a road uh, as they're going through, hopefully to data bliss, right? That's, that's a fun kind of creative outlet for our team to do that. That is fantastic. Let's talk about these data working tools. I know that you offer at least the ones listed in your website. I'm assuming they are free. They have like a 30-day trial or something like that. What's your thought on putting them out there? Is it your way of saying experiment with these tools? They work and they are important. They're going to be a critical part of the future ecosystem. What's your thought there? Yeah, so I had a chance, like I mentioned, to run the Tableau public marketing team for about seven years. And so I love these free tools that are out there. When I teach my class at the University of Washington, it's great to kind of break off for half an hour and show them a new tool like Flourish Studio, for example, Flourish.studio, which Duncan Clark and his team have created out of the UK that essentially allows you to create interactive D3 uh, charts and graphs. And even tell, I mean, they did this really cool feature called a talkie where you can make an interactive uh, data story and then upload an audio track that is your voice walking someone through with the findings in the data. And that's out there. It's free. It's amazing. And obviously, you know, they have a, a version of that product that you can buy if you want to use it for proprietary purposes. But the free stuff is amazing. So one tool that we as an organization, we put like our marketing budget into sponsoring raw graphs uh, in 2019. And so raw graphs is this tool that, you know, really is designed to, and it's rawgraphs.io and it's made by a team out of Italy. And their goal was to be the bridge between spreadsheets and print graphics. So they make it very easy to turn a spreadsheet into At first, some of the more complex chart types that are difficult to make with traditional tools. And then you could output that as an SVG file so that you can import it into Illustrator or whatever in order to be able to create a high quality print piece for, it could actually be for print or it might just be for a PDF for a report or something like that, right? Um, So those are just tools we play around with, we try, we love, and we like to sponsor them and give them a lot of love. I think the most challenging thing with that little list is that it's really hard to keep it updated. Anytime you have a resource list, you know you almost have to put a little reminder to go back in and keep it fresh. I think we need to take another look at that and, and maybe uh, freshen it up a bit. Or, you know, I'd, I'd almost say you got to think about crowdsourcing ideas, right? I mean, a lot of the companies that are offering contents like yours, like data literacy, for example, the moment you start crowdsourcing them and asking for inputs, you'll get some phenomenal ideas from out there. Yeah, it's a wonderful suggestion. We played around with the idea of launching a little community section of the site to do those sorts of things, set up little discussion boards about these exact topics. And you know, like you say, just kind of give people that outlet to be able to share what they know instead of taking it upon ourselves to uh, 
continually, you know, update. Samir Sharma, who was in our show earlier, he has this uh, data strategy community uh, and they talk a lot about what what is the world of data strategy up to and what does business strategy mean and all of that. And then there's, uh, yeah, there, there are some there are some wonderful data communities out there. How important was that last year, right? To have those ability, that ability to connect with people. I mean, we, we really were stuck at home, many of us. And so it was really, I think, a, a neat thing to be able to interact. Like you said, you know, things move so quickly so many people know so many things and if we can just kind of connect with them. Absolutely. All right. Well, we're coming to the end of the show. Are you ready for a lightning round? Hit me with it. (laughs) All right. Uh, Let's start with a couple of your favorite books and or podcasts. You you can't uh, say the books you wrote. Okay, sure. Okay. My books are not included. Good. Okay. So I really love Better Data Visualizations just came out from John Schwabish. Uh, That one's amazing. And I recommend that to everyone. John Schwabish at the Urban Institute has done a fabulous job of giving a real thorough view of charts and graphs and what they're good for. I'll throw one that's a little bit of a curveball maybe called Mind in Motion by Barbara Tversky. Um, Barbara Tversky is a researcher. I think she's in NYU, I believe, but she a Stanford University professor as well. And she has summarized a lot of her research into how our brains work when it interacts with motion, graphics, lines and bars and time. And I found that fascinating and it really helped me in the development of one of of our courses that I won't mention (laughs) because this isn't about self-promotion. And then I guess the third one I'd throw in there books-wise, I have to uh, shout out Tamara Munzner, professor in uh, University of British Columbia, Vancouver, BC. She wrote a book called Visualization Analysis and Design and her graphics that her graphic designer, Eamon McGuire, and she put into that book have been shared in Creative Commons so that anyone can use them. And it just does a really great job of, of looking at all the ways in which we interact with visual data. So those are some that, I, that come to top of mind. Podcast-wise, I really love Ali Torben's Data Viz Today podcast. I think she does a great job. And you can see a lot of my references are visualization slanted. Feel free to throw a thriller in there or some drama. No problem. Okay, so you know how we go down these little rabbit holes. I got into the work of um, a spy, a nonfiction spy author by the name of Ben McIntyre. And he wrote a really great book called The Spy and the Traitor. And it's about Oleg Gordievsky, who's a Russian double agent in the 20th century. So The Spy and the Traitor is a really fascinating read as the uh, this MI6 tries to extract him from Moscow. And it's a really fascinating read. So that's there's a little curveball for that's you That's it. That's what yeah. I was looking for. That's it right there. <laughs> it is. It is. Yeah. Elephant Company is a good one too about a, an elephant trainer in Burma in World War II who actually ends up using his elephant uh, herd to engage in in uh, helpful ways, I guess, for the allies. So interesting story there about animals and his love for animals, which I find interesting. So there you go. I will make sure we put all these book names uh, in our show notes. And uh, Ben, what did you do during your COVID lockdown in your house? Something that is special or different? Yeah, we wrote a lot. I wrote a lot, but I also kayaked. I really found it was such a great way to social distance, to get out in nature, we actually, uh, I got married and so our uh, honeymoon was canceled because of COVID. And so they were really this little place in Costa Rica. The owners who are from Germany were amazing. They gave us all our money back and we used it to buy a couple kayaks and paddled around here in Seattle. 
on different lakes. And, and, uh, it was a wonderful way just to get a breath of fresh air and, and just get back in nature and try to try to stay calm. Right. So that was one thing we did to stay sane. That is fantastic. What's, what's the next big thing for you? Well, so right now we're working on our level two book and course, and it's really about the data analytics process. And we've come up with a framework that is tool agnostic. And so I'm hard at work at that right now. We're in production on that. And, um, you know, want to help people become more competent analysts. And um, that's what's next on that side of it. It should hit probably in July or so is when you'll, you'll see the launch of that. Uh, and that's really uh, when I left Tableau, that was, this was the program I was dreaming of doing uh, from day one. And so it's really fun for me to try to find ways to enc- encompass this whole analytics process. You know, what does it mean to think clearly and critically with data? That is fantastic. Last question before we wrap up here. What is your uh, advice for organizations that are striving hard to become data literate? If I were to give them one piece of advice, be patient with the process. It's a process. You're not going to become highly data literate overnight. Like any other maturity curve, it helps to have someone that's championing the transition. So I'd say find that champion and, and let that person do their thing. Keep at it. That's an excellent yes. advice. Ben, I have thoroughly enjoyed our chat here and I've become data literate since talking to you as well. (laughs) We wish you good luck on your future. Uh, Same to you. And thanks for having me. Thank you, Ben. Thanks for tuning in to Intelligent Data with Arvind Morali. Subscribe to our podcast to make sure you don't miss a single episode. You can find this season along with show notes at Perficient.com or listen to this series on top podcast platforms, including Apple, Google, Spotify, or Amazon.